Great. Uh, when we were here last week, we were preparing ourselves for the general election. And now it's over. Or is it? Maybe not quite. The election is over. But we don't quite know what, uh, who our government will be and what sort of policies uh, they will adhere to after the election. Um, I've been rather fascinated to see how it all works out. And I think it's quite helpful for us to continue to think through how we as Christians engage politically in our society. That's what we started doing last week, very much focused on the election. And it's, I'm going to continue that theme looking at the book of Revelation, um, which we started looking at two weeks before then. Last week... Uh, Alison mentioned uh, Jesus' declaration, some call, sometimes called a manifesto. He declared that he brought good news, freedom for the poor, the blind, for prisoners and the oppressed. He quoted the words of Isaiah before his own community and said, these words have come true in your presence. We also looked at one of the passage, passages um, in Romans, Romans 13, And I guess those of us who voted this week take a broadly Pauline view. Paul Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. We think God works within human structures, and so we too participate in them. We work with governments because, flawed though they may be, they have authority from God. But John, the writer of Revelation is much, much more sceptical about human governments than Paul is. And he's very much concerned about the corruption of power and influence. And it's one of the things I enjoy about reading the Bible and about trying to understand through it how God wants us to live today um, is that we often find more than one point of view on any subject. We have four Gospels for a start. And Paul looks at political power from one perspective, and John looks at it from another. And to get to the bottom of this, we need to lay these perspectives side by side. We're not going to be able to do that completely today, and we're going to be looking at John's perspective very particularly And I like to think it uh, as as looking at these perspectives are like lights on a stage. Um, The lights are hung from above and from a side. They throw light on the stage and on the objects on the stage from different angles. And they're often different colors. And without a variety of lights, the piece of theater, the play or the concert is only seen from one angle. Having these different perspectives gives us greater depth. So let's look at chapters 18 and 19. They come at the end of a much longer piece, right back to chapter 13, if you want to sort of cut up um, Revelation. Um, But beyond that, um, in which John registers his really grave concern about the world order of his day. In this passage, as in most of the book, the language is uncompromising. We get filthy, unclean, dirty. We get evil desires, drunkenness, punishment, prostitution. 
and the imagery is, is fantastical. We've got beasts, we've got dragons, we've got many-headed creatures, we've got prostitutes, we've got angels, we've got all sorts of things. Some of the, a lot of this, um, there's acts of great cruelty and violence. And this is really quite unpleasant. The canvas is large. This is no careful argument that John's working out. This is like a stage, and you can imagine it when you've read the book. A stage filled with verbal images. It's pulsating with destruction. There's a sort of heady swirl, or at least there is when I read it, of pictures of evil upon evil. Now, some people love this impassioned, vivid, poetic writing, and some people rather recall, recoil from it. Um, I, I met a man earlier this week um, who was really quite surprised that I was preaching on Revelation. He'd had this strange interpretation. He was now retired, and he remembered very vividly somebody trying to explain it to him when he was still at school. And he, he, he just sort of almost shuddered, you know, oh dear, you know. Um, and, and uh, when I said, well, it's quite interesting in the political situation which we're in, he looked really quite taken aback. But I think we have to remember for a start that John's first audience were probably fairly used to this way of communicating really important things. They were quite used to people uh, using uh, big images, strange beasts, to talk about their life. And, of course, we get, we're used to sort of strange beasts and that sort of thing, but they tend to form sort of gothic thrillers or, or horror. And, indeed, those sorts of genres have, have really used revelation to create all sorts of other fantastic stories. And I don't really think that's a terribly helpful way to go, nor do I think the other thing, which you'll find um, if, you, if you look on the Internet, if you type in revelation, is... is some very interesting interpretations where people are sort of basically finding things they don't like and, and, and pointing the finger, whether it's communism or the EU or, or whatever it is. Ah, oh, look, there, there's, there's the Antichrist. And they point the finger. Actually, I think the finger turns back to us and where we are, and we need to be careful of that sort of interpretation. So let's try and understand what John was about in John's context almost 2,000 years ago. What was he talking about and what was he saying about it? Um, and uh, to start off with, I think we need to remember what we said in the, the previous two weeks when we've been looking at this, that Revelation shows us the difference that Easter makes, that everything that John says is in response to Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, and the cosmic consequences of the resurrection. And then we'll come back to that later. This is, this is big picture stuff. This is enormous. This is everything you can imagine being talked about. So in chapter 17 and chapter 18, Paul talks, uh, Paul, John talks about Babylon. Um, but before he talks about Babylon, he's already introduced us to the figure of a beast a few chapters earlier. A figure of political dominion, a force or a spirit that wields enormous influence, that has the power to make decisions that affect the lives of all those that live within its sphere. And I don't think John's necessarily saying this is always a particular figure or a particular party. It's a sort of power that can infest, if you like, political uh, people or structures or, or 
and it's a malevolent power. So when we get on to chapter 17 and 18, he starts talking about Babylon. And Babylon is the social system that's supported by this power of the beast. And he's really drawing on here on Jewish memory of Babylon as a place of exile and false religion. So his first readers, you know, read to hear Babylon, and they have a whole sort of corporate memory of what that means. And it, it's, it's not good. Um, and John uses this name, Babylon, and all the resonances it has to refer to the great socio-economic political bloc of his age, the Roman Empire. And so the beast is seen as the malevolent powers of the rulers of that empire, which sort of spread right across the uh, Mediterranean, covering a large part of the known world in those days. One other character we need to know about, the prostitute. Jews often referred to the act of turning away from one true God and valuing other gods or other things more highly as a form of adultery or prostitution. It was a lack of faithfulness to a loving and committed relationship. That's what the Jews understood God wanted from them, a loving and faithful relationship. That's what he gave them even when they went astray. And there's plenty of um, parts of the Old Testament which refer to that. And so John's again bringing up these Old Testament references and saying, uh, pointing out where people have gone away from a relationship with the loving and almighty God. So the prostitute who rides the beast may well symbolize the attitude in the Roman Empire that any spirituality any set of values will do as long as they uphold imperial power. doesn't matter which god you worship, which philosopher you adhere to, as long as you are prepared at least once a year to worship the emperor. And Romans really didn't think this was a big deal. Look, you can, you, you know, they couldn't understand why Jews and Christians refused to do this. You do your own stuff all year round. We don't mind. But just... Show your loyalty, show where your political loyalty lies by worshipping the emperor. That's how you do it. And Christians and Jews said, we can't do that. That's going too far. We can't show our loyalty in that way. And that's one of the reasons why um, uh, early Christians and Jews were persecuted at times during during the Roman Empire. So, and in chapter 18, we've got John watching this vision of the political and economic collapse of his world. And he's watching with this sort of horrified fascination. There's no suggestion that he's particularly enjoying watching it. In fact, the rich imagery that's used suggests that he knew the attraction of finery and luxury, that he felt grief for those who mourned its downfall, for the kings, the merchants, and the travelers, that he lamented with the traders who lost their livelihoods, even whilst he acknowledged that they were were trading in slaves, in, in human people as well as in commodities, that they were treating humans as commodities. 
John was forced to recognize the wickedness of the power that had worked to bring glory and honor and power to its unworthy self and not to the risen Lord. In doing so, it had trampled upon the lowly instead of raising them up. It had abused the poor rather than aiding them and had set systems in place which disadvantaged the marginalized. What John knew as a stable political order And what Paul, who was a Roman citizen, believed was a reasonably just and equitable system that he was proud to be part of, is shown in this vision to be deeply flawed and and suspect. And I think that's what we need to understand. This is quite, this this isn't a rail against the worst sort of political system. This is a rail against the the best sort of political system that people knew in those days. I mean, you have the zealots, of course, who criticize it for very good reasons, and this is part of that tradition. But this is one where political and economic relations flourished. So what we have here is a criticism of the best that human history had achieved. It's inadequate when viewed in the light of the resurrection as God's act of cosmic love and revelation. And as we move on to chapter 19, we see God's judgment on a powerful system that has become corrupt. And when I read this, I felt uncomfortable. It was almost like the Hallelujahs was a sort of gloat over this terrible, painful destruction. And yet I think we need to read them as a relief and thankfulness for those who have suffered injustice and death right at the end of of, of 24, people are dying. Those who have been oppressed know that God is not going to let injustice continue forever. Those who have suffered for their Christian beliefs, those who have challenged the values of the world, those who have died because they've refused to condone corruption, will see goodness triumph. The heavenly multitude rejoices knowing that the corrupt system comes to an end. Now, what do we do with this? We, we've got a sense of what John might, might have been saying at his time, but what do we do with it? Well, people have, have suggested various things. One has been a retreat from the world. You know, you've got these very stark contrasts between a corrupt, a, a holistic system, polis, we've, you know, we've even got trade going on, travel going on, as well as uh, trade and um, political machinations. We've got kings, merchants, and travellers in chapter 18. Um, well, I won't say anything about volcanic ash. Um, so some people have said, well, we just retreat from this terrible situation. We just focus entirely on joining the angels and singing beautifully forever. It doesn't really fit. Another one is to attack the world that we live in constantly and all of the time. It's all bad. It's all corrupt. But you see, when we read it alongside other parts of the New Testament, that doesn't quite weigh out either. So here's some of the thoughts that I've had as I was reading this through. I think John's saying, as we said in the two previous weeks, The resurrection of Jesus puts everything in a new light. 
Everything is changed as a result of the resurrection. The way we perceive our cosmos is changed as a result of the resurrection. We have hope beyond our historical circumstances. We are not bounded by the political and economic systems of our age. And it says, because we know that Christians, as Christians, our faith changes our perception of things, it changes our values, it therefore challenges our complacency. I think particularly for those of us who don't live in a part of the world where we sense uh, the really heavy burden of political oppression that some people do, or persecution for Christian faith that some people do. This is the real challenge. It challenges our complacency and asks us whether our contentment lies in Jesus Christ or whether it lies in misplaced in material comfort. And it also says that our Christian faith might make things difficult for us. In fact, it probably will. It involves some sort of suffering, some sort of giving up, of things that we might enjoy, some sort of recognition that if we follow Jesus, we can't involve ourselves in other parts of life. And I was, as I was preparing this, I read um, a report with some rather sort of uncomfortable sense of, of recognition, a report of a study uh, on how humans uh, operate. And it was suggesting in this study that we often operate a sort of moral offsetting in our daily lives. Um, In this study, participants were asked to choose um, a response to a number of sort of ethical tasks. And so those who bought environmentally friendly products tended not to be quite so generous when choosing gifts for friends. And those who were generous to friends gave less to charity and so on. And it seemed to be a question of one good deed deserved a break from doing another. This is clearly not the ethic suggested in in Revelation. Um, We might recognize ourselves in that, but there are no half measures in Revelation. And its radical stance seems to have implications for how we operate politically. Our focus is on Christ. We cannot condone injustice. And this led me to, to my second point. Um, you've probably heard the strapline a few times in recent days. Whoever you vote for, the government always gets in. Only in this case, we don't quite know which government we're going to get yet. <laughs> but we hope we might in a few days' time. Um, and it's often said, you know, it's supposed to be an anarchist slogan, isn't it? So with cynicism and detachment from political involvement. But I, I don't think we say it with that. But we do say it in recognition that our democratic political system is flawed. That it supports, is supported and supports in turn an economic and social system which benefits some more than others. The credit crunch has shown this up clearly. Uh, you know, sometimes it's felt like the scales have dropped from our eyes, things that we didn't know about or weren't terribly sure about uh, two years ago suddenly seem blatantly obvious and a moral outrage. Um, 
the deep concerns that are being raised about the damage done to the environment in the name of progress and economic gain is another. Revelation also demands that we recognize that whilst politicians operate within the boundaries of a single nation state and are expected to work for the good of that nation above all others, God is concerned with the whole world. Now, there are plenty of details we could flesh out in this to talk about, well, what does, you know, how might, how might I act? And we're not going to have time to do that, but I hope this gives you a few thoughts. Um, and at the beginning, or the almost beginning of a new government, whether the result has gone the way we wished or not, it's a good time to remind ourselves of our duty to challenge our politicians to change structures which adversely affect the vulnerable, whether they're the vulnerable of this country or of other countries. And I think uh, on Christian Aid Sunday, we've been given a very good example in the setting the scene of the way things simply aren't fair for many people. And there are many ways in which we tackle that. We might try, we're talking about fair trade chocolate, Buying fairly traded chocolate is one way we try and say, or, or fairly traded goods, is one way we're saying things aren't right, we want to change them. But fair trade operates within an unfair trading system. So some people, and Christian Aid is one of the organisations, that works to change the way in which the nations trade. A very important part of Chapter 19, trading is one of the things that falls. And organisations like Christian Aid and like the one that Mandy uh, mentioned and also um, the support that we gave to advocacy for street children, these are organisations which we support because they campaign on issues that are close to us and they're people who have um, spent some time working on how to do it within our political systems um, and how to engage political parties on these issues. So one of the ways that we could maybe start this week is to take Christian Aid envelopes home, support the coffee morning, look at the stuff on their website, talk to Mandy, um, renew our acquaintance with uh, the, the Street Children Project, and you may well be able to think of of other ways. But before we do that, we will take communion. And I think our actions should always start with the same impetus that caused John to record his visions. The recognition of the Lamb who was slain. In chapter 19, we saw the story of the wedding banquet between Christ and the church in which we are invited to be the bride as a church and also to participate in the feast, to be uh, an invited guest. So as we celebrate communion, we not only do so in memory of Jesus' death and resurrection, but we do so in the hope of the heavenly banquet, when wrongs will be righted, when there is fairness and justice for all, and it is that hope, it is that confidence that prepares us for carrying God's mission of justice and mercy 
into the communities of whom we are a part, of our nation and of our world. So as we take bread and wine together, let us focus on the crucified and risen Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to discern injustice and to live out that manifesto that Jesus spoke of, to bring good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to release captives and the oppressed. Amen.